Shut up and sit down. In this extended episode of the Seven Day Brew, we look ahead to what's brewing in the week to come. Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte is set to visit China. More troubles for the European Union, but can it solve its issues on its own? And our weekly bulletin for you in a rundown of the week ahead. My name is Ernest, and thanks for joining us. Our top story this week, Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte will embark on a four-day visit to China from Tuesday, October 18th. The Philippines is in the midst of a discussion for a 25-year military agreement with Beijing that opens the purchase of Chinese weaponry in its largely US-equipped and trained armed forces. The visit has also created excitement from within the Philippine business community as the Asian superpower presents a multitude of opportunities for trade and capital investments. However, Mr. Duterte's visit comes at a time of turbulent relations with the West. Relations have been strained over the strongman's controversial anti-drug crackdown and Mr. Duterte has signalled his unhappiness over what he sees as interference from the West. The visit could signal a shift in alliances within ASEAN. The president has also suggested the possibility of a visit to the Kremlin after his stop in Beijing. At the same time, Mr. Duterte continues to receive strong domestic approval. Duterte may have garnered an approval rating of over 64% in his first 100 days in office, but it would be useful to note that this is only 4% higher than his predecessor. Meanwhile, it seems that other ASEAN nations have yet to adjust to the new Philippine leader, especially as disputes over the South China Sea continue to linger. Other ASEAN nations with key stakes in the waters have looked largely to the US-backed Philippines for leadership over this issue, but they may have to find support elsewhere should there be a change in the tides. In this week's feature story, troubles for the European Union just don't seem to end. Russian President Vladimir Putin was set to visit Paris this week, but cancelled all his plans as relations with the West continue to deteriorate. And with comments like these from the British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, we can see why. If Russia continues in its current path, then I believe that great country is in danger of becoming a pariah nation. And if, if President Putin's strategy is to restore the greatness and the glory of Russia, then I believe he risks seeing his ambition turn to ashes in the face of international contempt for what is happening in Syria. But the European Union faces many more concerns than just their involvement in the Syrian war. And with the closure of one of its largest migrant camps set for Monday, October 17th, does the Union just have too much on its plate? The jungle in Calais is one of the most infamous refugee camps in the continued migration crisis. It houses over 9,000 migrants and has consistently come under calls for its demolition. The French president and parliament have vowed to close the camp down as it continues to blame Britain for not doing enough to mitigate the overcrowding in Calais. This, however, is just one of the myriad of issues facing the European Union and its member states. 
Talks with Russia regarding a peace agreement on the Syrian conflict have come to a standstill as negotiations over the Crimean annexation continue to strain relations between Russia and the West. And as the migrant policy of German Chancellor Angela Merkel comes under pressure following her party's loss in recent local elections, questions remain over the leadership and capacity of the EU to solve the troubles ahead. I speak with Clement Law, a political observer over the European Union, who studied conflict resolution and institutional identity in the EU. And he believes that the quagmire of today's EU politics only scratched the surface of a deeper and historical contradiction. To begin, uh, I think it's necessary to have a short detour into the story of the EU to understand what the EU can do, what the EU is supposed to do, and what the EU should do. The EU was a peace solution, a peace compact, born out of the world of World War II. In that sense, you view it in that way, it's actually an, an internal solution to an internal problem. There has always been the issue of war being very closely entwined with the EU's own history. I think it is also crucial to know that uh, in the settlement um, that was forged post-World War II, there were many institutional actors in place. So there is that sort of tension inherent into the uh, EU's own DNA. I think there are seven different European institutions, and two of them, I think, are the biggest and the more influential ones. Council of the European Union, so that is where the national leaders sit in and the European Parliament, which is the more, I would say, normative side of the EU. They primarily think of how Europe should be conceived of in the world. Due to the different strands of thinking between the more realist uh, side of the Council and the more normative permission, there is definitely a sort of uh, disenchantment and disengagement between the two. He sees this tension between the European Council and Commission play out in the ongoing talks over the Crimean annexation. In general, what we, see, what we have seen is that there is a huge disjuncture in the ways that Europe has dealt with Ukraine and Russia in terms of the Commission and the Council. So for example, like Germany has been resuming uh, trade with Russia. Obviously, that, that is a no-go under the very strict Commission sort of, uh, initial reaction. But on the other hand, on the national level, you see countries actually looking at their own national interests and going against such broad directives. There is a difference between what the EU, what Europe hopes to do and what Europe actually does. So in terms of any immediate action that can come out, I think uh, most observers, and I count myself as one of them, are very pessimistic as to what Europe can do. Europe, of course, has to start its house first, but this house is a really fractured one and has always been fractured since 1948. More importantly, this disjuncture between idealism and reality has created today's rift in addressing the migration crisis. If we go back to what I believe and what I said earlier, that Europe is an internal solution to an internal problem, then, of course, the European project makes sense in the sense that you know it never uh, occurred to them to, to have a safety catch or migrants streaming in externally to an internal uh, thing. So in some sense, the walls are outside, whereas the walls inside have come down. So, you know, uh, it makes perfect sense if we read a situation like that, that there is some sort of uh, disharmony between what Europe is, what Europe is set up to do, and what Europe is currently facing now. Whether that has any easy resolution, I would think that is not an easy answer, definitely. There is not an answer we will be getting anytime soon. The fact is, I think there has to be some sort of uh, external measure, so to speak. I think internally, Europe has tried to uh, do to sort of smoothen out the migrant uh, assimilation process. So, in some sense, I think looking going forward, Europe has to look outwards rather than inwards. This idea of looking outwards seeks to bind Europe back to realistic anchors back to the world and the world as it is. Europe has proven to be a failure in terms of its own imaginings of cosmopolitan being. 
so uh, by looking outwards and actually seeking sort of uh, some accommodations from its its neighbors who are grounded in more uh, realist underpinnings, then I think uh, there is a definite U-turn in what in what Europe is and the direction Europe is heading to. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's just a normalization of uh, what many observers have suspected from the beginning, that Europe, again, is an internal solution to an internal problem. When the external problem is coming in, Europe, of course, has to look externally again. And we kick off our weekly bulletin with big news in the tech world. We start off with electric car makers Tesla, who are set to unveil a new product on Monday, October 17th. Tesla CEO Elon Musk made the announcement through Twitter last week and said the product is unexpected by most. Unexpected indeed as the company previously announced plans to unveil a new solar roof on October 28th following the agreed acquisition of solar energy product developer SolarCity earlier this year. There have been speculations that both Tesla and SolarCity have been burning through cash having posted operating losses for 14 straight quarters. Musk, of course, promptly shot those rumours down. Meanwhile, as Samsung's latest attempt to break the iPhone monopoly went up in flames, this week we'll see two other phone makers taking their own stab. Huawei and Google will have new handsets hitting the market this week. Huawei will release the Honor 6X, its latest addition to their line of products. But more eyes will be trained on Google, whose latest entry into the smartphone market has been rumoured for several years now. It finally unveiled the Google Pixel, whose core features include the Google Assistant, or your very own personal Google. It will be available in three colours, namely quite black, very silver, and really blue. A blatant prod at the Apple's latest black and jet black iPhone 7s. It also, according to its promotional video, includes a headphone jack. Does the Pixel have what it takes to bring down the iPhone? We'll find out on Thursday, October 20th. The final American presidential debate is set for Wednesday, October 19th. Various third-party candidates such as Libertarian Gary Johnson and Green Party nominee Jill Stein have not qualified to take part in this debate. Both Johnson and Stein did not surpass the 15% polling threshold. The Vietnamese parliament looks set to ratify the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal when they sit on Thursday, October 20th. Vietnam has already delayed the ratification by one sitting as the government proposal was said to be incomplete. The ratification is widely considered to be a formality having already been approved by key leaders in the ruling Communist Party. We get closer to home as East Coast Park's oldest and most iconic attraction, Big Splash, will close on Friday, October 21st when its lease with N Park expires. The 39-year-old attraction is most famously remembered for its long water slide and has featured numerous attractions from restaurants to beach volleyball courts over the years. Its anchor tenant, Seafood International Market and Restaurant, which was Singapore's first live seafood shopping and dining concept restaurant, has already closed the last month and with no plans to relocate. And finally, in sports, the BMP Paribas WTA Final Singapore starts on Sunday, October 23rd, 
Top seed Angelic Kerber will reach Singapore hot on her recent form, having claimed world number one from American Serena Williams. Second seed Williams will hope to regain the title that she won two years ago, but third seed and defending champion Agnieszka Rowanska will give the top two seeds a run for the money. And that's $7 million to be exact. Now, thank you for joining me again. It has been a pleasure having you on this 7-Day Brew. Again, if you like what you heard, do subscribe for more next week. And if you have stories that you want heard, share it with me in the comments. The best way that you can say thank you is by sharing this with your friends. Until the next brew, I'm Ernest Poi.